It's that time of year, folks. Nick Saban is on the prowl, Dabo Sweeney is on his pulpit, and Hugh Freeze is on his back. It's football season. And that means it's football media season. You've got Dr. Pepper's Fansville commercials, every college trying to remind people that they're academic institutions and not just football programs. And you've got crying fans waiting to be immortalized as memes. Because football is never just about football. It's a months-long cultural conversation. And helping lead that conversation this year is the Banner Society, a new site from SB Nation dedicated to college football. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we're talking with Ryan Nanny about how he rose from the ranks of a commenter to editor-in-chief. It's a conversation about football, but it also turned into a conversation about how modern media works. And of course, an opportunity to mock Tennessee. So strike up the band, it's time for The Reckon Interview. Okay, Ryan Nanny, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Hey, thank you for having me. So you are the uh, co-founder of and editor-in-chief of the newly launched Banner Society. Uh, your website at launch was literally a footballwebsite.com. Um, so, you know, I think it's fair to say you're, it's a little meta, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, it's part of that attitude that you all have brought to shut down Fullcast and SB Nation and Every Day Should Be Saturday. But why launch a new football website now? You know, what, what sets you all apart? I think it was an opportunity for us to sort of do a reset and build something that is born out of the same things you're talking about as sort of a spiritual successor of Every Day Should Be Saturday in some ways and the full cast and what we've done as SB Nation's college football section. Um, but in a lot of ways, it was sort of a an opportunity for us to build something that goes beyond a website. It's I think we're trying to think of it as a multi-platform thing or at least a more platform agile kind of thing so that people can find us on Reddit and people can attend a live show and people can go find Spencer or Bud talking on Twitch or something like that um, in ways that hopefully make sense for our audience and what we're trying to do connecting with them, but don't always necessarily line up with the overall corporate initiative of a big giant company like Vox Media. It's it's It gives us a little more of a laboratory, I guess, is the way to think of it, where we can sort of experiment and tweak and try new things. And if they work, great. And if they fail, we try something else. So in kind of the uh, Russian nesting dolls of uh, media, y'all are part of SB Nation, which is a part of Vox Media. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. We are the termite inside of the smallest nesting doll. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, college sites, um, college football sites that have have come and have gone. Um, you know, Deadspin seems to have to have slowed and, and kind of hit some troubles in recent years and is not quite the destination that it once was. Um, you know, SB Nation and, and Every Day Should Be Saturday obviously have, have a long tradition. Then you have kind of appealing to a different audience, I think, is Barstool Sports. Um, has college football media peaked? Is it pe- peaking? Um, you know, is there still room to grow? I think it's changed a lot for sure. Um I, I I don't think it's peaked just because I don't think interest in college football or sort of the weird world that surrounds college football, Hugh Freeze and his 
press box furniture <laughs> being a great example of that. Um, sure. so, so yeah, I don't think it's big, but I do think it's changed a lot. Um, podcasts for, for one are an area where, you know, that was not a thing in a lot of college football circles not all that long ago. The solid verbal has definitely been around a long time and they're 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 in many ways the the torch carriers of that format. But you know, now you have the athletic launching a bunch of new podcasts. You have um I think USA Today is doing the same. So I, I think it's it's a matter of how college football media interacts with fans and their communities that's evolving and sometimes that's in ways that other some places are better prepared for that or others are more comfortable with that than others and that creates a good deal of i think rising and falling and movement that is not always predictable but is probably mm-hmm. healthy in the aggregate well and you know the the shutdown forecast uh, which y'all bill is the only college football podcast uh in some ways is is about a lot more than college football i mean it's not you're not breaking down x's and o's every week uh you recently had an episode that kind of built itself as trying to explain years worth of in jokes and and references uh <laughs> in in the course of you know an hour and i think it was 99 something or or 100 something jokes um how has has it been an intentional build in creating this community over time, or is it just a matter of getting the right people in the right place? And you know, uh, you and Holly and Spencer um, and Jason, you know, your your personalities playing off of each other. How how was how did this come to be? Like, at what point did y'all decide, okay, it's time to take a risk and and try our own thing? So, I think the answer is weirdly both. The full cast itself is. And anybody who listens to it will probably not be surprised by this. Is an entirely what it is is entirely unintentional. There was no PowerPoint presentation, you know, grand plan where we said we're going to make this very weird, extremely non-college football, college football podcast, um, and it's going to be a thing that some people like. Like it just sort of was a thing we wanted to do, and in many ways, it's sort of a reflection and and sometimes an amplification of how we talk about college football amongst ourselves. It's a little bit more probably like a very poorly performed improv show than a college football <laughs> podcast sometimes. It's, it's well performed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we did our first live show September uh, 2018, I believe it was, in Atlanta. And we had a basically the the rest of the Espionation College football crew there. So Bud Elliott was there and Stephen Godfrey, um, Richard Johnson, Alex Kirshner, uh, Bill Connolly was there. And what was really cool was that at that people were people were excited to come to the show and they had a good time it seemed like and that was great. But they were also super excited to meet Richard and talk to Godfrey and get a picture with Bud. And that was, I think, the first inkling I had of the sense that we had a little bit of a broader community that we could potentially say, okay, that's who we're going to talk to and that's who we're going to try to grow. And if that means we are not the biggest, broadest, most Google 
uh, Google Victorious college football brand on the block. I think that's probably okay. And long term is probably better for us if we can say, yeah, we are the thing that a rel- like we're not ESPN big, but we have a level of loyalty and affinity and community that they probably don't. Yeah. And I think um, in some ways that manifested itself in week one of college football. Y'all had an open Slack channel that, um, you know, anybody who whose fans of yours or members of, of your community could could join and make jokes about Hugh Freeze uh, being on his back for the entirety of, of their <laughs> game. Uh, I guess the question that comes out of that, and it, I, and I don't know, is it a question that y'all even have to worry about, or does SB Nation and Vox kind of handle that? Like, you know, ESPN and traditional media, they sell advertising and things alongside their products in order to make it profitable. Do y'all, do y'all worry about the kind of financials of of the Banner Society? I mean, how do you monetize a, a, a Reddit community or a Slack yeah. chat, for example? Um, I, I definitely worry about it. I don't know if it's formally my job, but as the person at the top of our particular org chart, I worry about it. My hunch is basically that we will be able to see some see monetization in some what I, what I would call indirect ways. So we'll take, you know, a college football Saturday, for example. I've sort of told our group, spend that time on Twitter or in our Slack channel or on Reddit because my theory is that that's where college football fans are if they're on the internet um, on a Saturday. They're not really looking to go to your website all that much. They're not, they're, yeah, there's, that's not necessarily. science theater. Everybody's right. watching and making jokes together. Right. And my theory is that if, if you do a good job on Saturday, building sort of getting people to know who you are what you do why you do it and and liking that 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 will manifest itself positively other ways like either you will start to see people start reading your stuff more throughout the week or when you have a live show to sell tickets to you'll do a lot better there you'll sell some merchandise um but it's still like it's still very much an open question i think because you know the existing digital model is still so so revolving around it still revolves around programmatic ad displays and it's a matter of saying okay can we convince x number of people to give us y number of dollars in a given year in one of various forms whether it's a subscription maybe to something or a live show or you know, using a offer code that we have a podcast sponsor for, something like that. Can we sort of convince mm-hmm. the audience to directly support us in those ways? And I, I'm hopeful that the answer is yes. But yeah, you I know, mean, it it, it, re- seems... it remains to be seen for sure. Well, and uh, I mean, correct me if my if I'm wrong, but you you kind of started out as a as a commenter, right? I mean, you you know, you you didn't go to journalism school you you were a lawyer by trade and and took a very unconditional path uh, unconventional path to becoming editor-in-chief of a of a media company um so you have expo- you have exposed my dark and shameful secrets all of them um yeah i was i was a comment no no i've never even visited uh <laughs> i i was a commenter on every day should be saturday and you know slowly started writing there under a pseudonym for a while and after a very winding path you're right that's that's how i wound up where i am now 
So does that give you a different kind of sensibility, uh, you know, as having been uh, a consumer of Every Day Should Be Saturday as opposed to like Spencer Hall, who's always been kind of on the creator end of that particular product? I, th- I think so. Um, I, I hope so, at least. I, I, you know, it's one of those things where I don't know if Spencer remembers the first time he met me, but I remember the first time I met Spencer, and this was long before... I worked for the company, worked with him, anything like that. And I remember that I was pumped. I thought it was really cool that I was going to meet Spencer Hall. And that I think that helps me remember that there is an opportunity there to connect with people on kind of a lowercase p people way and mm-hmm. and see if you can build something out of that. And now, of course, you're his boss. So <laughs> Yes, which... Um, <laughs> Which is, if I could go back in time and tell myself that, I probably, me then would have probably been like, wow, that's amazing. And me now would be like, don't worry, it's got plenty of challenges. Was it, um, did it take some convincing to get him to walk away from an established property? I, he, I think he was ready at that point. Yeah. Um, he'd, been, he'd been doing EDSBS for so long and it had, you know, you talk about, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the full cast episode where we sort of pulled back the curtain to that was even more the case on every day should be Saturday. And that you're talking about a decade plus of, you know, shared language and repeated jokes and memes and things that in some ways can be really hard for an outsider who's coming to you for the first time to figure out who is fire horse. What am I, what am I learning? Who's like, why is the sun sphere talking like, I don't understand some of these things that are happening. And I don't think it's bad to develop those, but I do think it, this was more of an opportunity for us to sort of say, like, okay, as we do these things, let's make sure we are building in handholds below so that if you are a relatively new college football fan or if you are new to the thing that we do, it doesn't feel like, oh, that's a conversation I can't be part of and it's not, I'm not, like, going to be able to participate there meaningfully yeah for sure um at these in-person events you know you you were talking about it giving you the opportunity to to meet uh your fans and your and your members of the community that y'all have created um you know without giving away without outing anybody has there been any particular um people that you were surprised to match to their to their names and to their handles i don't i don't think there has been and that that probably has more to do with me than them like okay I have I have a voice that gets confused with Charlie Day's charitably, <laughs> right. and I have Eddie Murphy as my Twitter avatar, and I don't look anything like twi- like Eddie Murphy. So like, no. I I am so accustomed to that disconnect from other people that I think I am somewhat inured against it. Um, so yeah, I I can't remember. It's mostly uh, it's mostly been really positive, being like, oh yes, I know who you are. We've talked on Twitter. I've seen you in the comments. You've submitted a bunch of questions for the full cast before. Like it's it's been cool to put faces with names. I don't know that it's ever been surprising though. Okay. Yeah. No. No politicians that have been lurking is. Not to my knowledge. If they are, okay. they are welcome to contact me, and I will probably not divulge them. Coming up after the break, Ryan Annie talks about the weird encounter when he represented an Alabama fan on death row. Who 
who are Alabama fans? I think the Alabama fan base is easily the most passionate and concerned fan base in the country. They also are highly sensitive to what other people do and say. What does Alabama football really mean to them? At the end of the day, I, I would much rather go to the national championship and lose than go to any other bowl game. The podcast Bammers takes you inside the minds of Alabama football fans, their obsession with the Crimson Tide, and how far they take it year in and year out. Just because I dig a ditch from 8 to 5 and you graduated from the University of Alabama, that don't make you no better, no worse than me. Just search Bammers on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bammers, inside the minds of Alabama football fans. Well, you, you brought it up, so let's talk about the uh, the voice and the accent for for a minute. You grew up in Florida, is that right? Yeah, um, I grew up, I was born in Gainesville, but I spent really the bulk of my formative years in Tampa. So it's a, so it's a Florida accent, it's a Southern accent. When you walk around New York, do people associate that as a Southern accent, or do people I, think of it as, I mean, you mentioned Charlie Day, but do people think of it as something completely different? I don't, I don't know if anybody's ever specifically called it out as such in part because like so my parents are from california and like most people in tampa like i would say the bulk of the people i went to high school with their parents were not from florida they were from the midwest or the northeast or maybe somewhere else in the south um and so i have never i have never really thought of myself as having a particularly distinctive southern accent probably doing the full cast maybe brings what there is out of it more yeah. um doing it with Mine two comes out who... when i drink more so. <laughs> <laughs> um my and my wife is from tennessee so okay she, she, i definitely like get some of it from her from her as well especially when she's upset with me um so, so is but, that a, a tennessee fan florida fan marriage or is she cheer for somebody else no it it is it is in fact I'm that sorry. and yeah. um our, <laughs> I guess our it's okay third for you well, our third date was to a Tennessee Florida game that Tennessee lost and she had to sit in the uh in the hot baking sun of the swamp. So the fact that our relationship sustained that has really been bolstering over time. <laughs> that's that's good. Uh well speaking of sun, um, you know, there's a there's been a big discussion on Twitter this week about afternoon games in the SEC, uh, particularly in Alabama where it's expected to be 97 degrees uh, going into the New Mexico State game at 3 p.m. Um, and it seems like that, among maybe too much success for Alabama, uh, has led to a declining game attendance. Um, do you think that the in-person product of SEC teams is going to be able to sustain long-term? I mean, we're seeing stadiums that have kind of gone towards massive growth now shrinking and focusing more on luxury experiences as opposed to like common fan experiences. My answer is boring because I think, I think why this does or does not happen only has so much to do with the team and the game itself. I think it has a lot to do with the surrounding parts of it. Like I think it's very real that if traffic is a nightmare getting to or from a game, that's going to hurt you. I think if you have like not not as appealing options, and I'm not saying this is true of Alabama. I'm just speaking broadly. Um, yeah, sure. If your options for like local bars and restaurants near the stadium are not what people want, or your tailgating situation isn't as interesting as it used to be, or ticket prices are just higher than they were, it's interesting because for a separate project, I've been 
I've been doing a lot of research into the history of college football on television. And as far back as I want to say the 50s, there were already surveys that the um, the NCAA and the networks had taken that showed people back in the 50s thought the experience of watching college football on television then was just as good as going to the game. And if that, like, I think there's just always going to be some some truth to that. And the the unfortunate reality for Pat Fitzgerald and other college football coaches who are cranky about this is that college football made a decision really in like the 80s that it wanted to be a television product. And now it is a television, you know, we, the ACC network's a thing. You know, yeah. We have more and more games broadcast, it seems like, every year. And I think once you decide to become a television product, you are making a decision, whether you realize it or not, that you are you are secondarily a in-person um, spectator experience. And that doesn't mean it's not fun. It doesn't mean you shouldn't go. But in terms of why people do what they do, like there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy happening there. Yeah, and I, and I think that um, universities have also seen you know, other aspects of the football attending process that they can monetize. You know, in, in Tuscaloosa, the the kind of free-for-all quad space of tailgating is increasingly being encroached upon by these, like, big corporate tents. Um, right. And that changes, you know, some people's incentive to want to come and, and tailgate in the first place. Um, I know that you spent some time in Tuscaloosa uh, back in your past life as an, as an attorney, what was it like representing Alabama fans uh, as a Florida fan? <laughs> um, so the story I the story I always tell is that um, in my in my previous life as an attorney, one of the things that I did definitely not my full time job, thankfully because I wasn't good enough at it for it to be that uh, was <laughs> I I represented um, one person on death row who was appealing his conviction, and I went to meet with him one day. And, you know, it's the you, – you go to the prison. They put you in a room. They ask you if you want the cuffs off. You say yes because that builds trust and that's healthy and whatever. And this was <laughs> – I, I want to say this was two days after um, a Florida-Alabama a Florida Alabama game. I don't remember exactly which one it was. I'm confident it was in the Will Muschamp era that Alabama had won easily. And here I am strolling in. A free, a free person, a person who's going to leave this prison when I want to on my own terms and then go pretty much wherever I want, sitting across from somebody who's, you know, been con- con- uh, convicted and sentenced to execution. And he makes fun of me. He, he, <laughs> makes, he makes fun of me because my team lost, lost a college football game. And that was just such a stark moment of like, wow, this thing is very powerful and even in this scenario, I'm still frustrated that I have to be here, and he's right. Alabama whooped Florida that day, and that's frustrating to me. Even understanding the the power and the like relative imbalance between us right now, I, I you know I just sort of I think I just sort of tried to take, take a deep breath. breath, remember that we're working together in this circumstance, and and remind myself that Florida doesn't have to play Alabama every year. At, like my wife's team does, so so I have that going for me at least. <laughs> yeah, you know, and 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 Florida fans have something to live for that Tennessee fans don't. Yes, exactly. Um, that that kind of speaks to a to a broader issue, I guess, about you know the South and college football. Um, you're living in 
New York right now, although you're about to move to Nashville. Um, and unlike some brands, uh, y'all kind of cover college football as a whole, not just the SEC or not just the ACC. Do, I, I assume the SEC does kind of stand out as having that type, that level of fandom. Um, but is there a particular place or or team in the SEC that stands out to you above the others? It's, you know, it. I think it waxes and wanes to some extent. And I, I think it's just a matter of who I find fascinating in a given year rather than somebody who's consistently one way or the other. Like, like last year, I think Auburn was the most fascinating team to me because of their sort of eternal torture thing that they're doing with what do we do with this coach that we either love or hate. Um, This year, South Carolina is probably going to be very interesting for reasons that are much less balanced. Um, I think Arkansas is... Well, I mean, I don't think you get to start the season losing to a man who's been in the booth for like eight years and is coaching a team that wasn't very good last year and 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 start to feel good about it. Like, I think at the same time, you're talking about Will Muschamp having a, I think it's an $18 million buyout right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the I, I think it tests sort of... South Carolina school that I think is constantly being tested by its sense of itself as a fan base and how that how that either is confirmed or denied in the real world. There are some years where South Carolina's sense of we're scrappy and we're not respected and we belong here and we will we'll, you know we can we can we can play with the best of them on you know when Saturday comes. There are some years where that's true and there are, there are lots of teams Alabama's one of them who have terrible memories of losing to South Carolina teams that they're sure they should have beaten. Yeah. But well, that's very real. But but I don't know that this is going to be that year for South Carolina. I say that and mark the date because now I'm certain I've just jinxed Florida into losing to South Carolina. <laughs> well, and, and that kind of I mean I'm going to get in trouble for this, but that I mean that expands to the state of South Carolina as a whole, right? I mean Clemson's one several national titles in the last few years and and they still have that chip on their shoulder and feel like they have to prove themselves as a fan base yeah i think clemson is probably i think clemson turned the corner a good bit with this last championship when they humiliated us yes i i you know obviously these things are ephemeral and if if clemson loses two games this year and doesn't make the playoff like yeah, we'll we'll start. We'll do the same thing we do with with Bama. Bama loses a game, and it's time to say, "Is the dynasty over? Is Nick Saban has Nick Saban lost his touch?" Like we know the yeah. pattern at this point, and we know we know in the case of Alabama that no, you actually you have to shoot the zombie in the head. You can't just <laughs> assume because it fell down that it's done. Um, but. Yeah, that's the other that's the other tough thing for for South Carolina fans right now is that it wasn't that long ago you looked at those two programs and you said, "Okay, they're probably pretty close. South Carolina might be ahead right now." I mean, Spurrier, I want to say had like a 4 or 5 year winning streak against the Tigers. And now it's just like, "Man, what happened? 
your little brother, he got tall. He got strong. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> For the entire SEC, really. You know, they looked bad this past yeah. week. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, for the most part. I mean, the, the teams at the top did fine. Uh, Auburn, it's hard for me to say good things about, but Bo Nix acquitted himself well. Uh, we'll see if, if he can play like that all year. But let's talk about New York as a football town. So I lived sure. in California for a while, and it's, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Pac-12, but as a as a place to watch football, uh, California is very underrated because you can roll out of bed on Saturday morning and basically watch football all day. Um, the East Coast seems like that's got to be the worst place to watch football just because of the time zones. It's not ideal for that reason. Um, the So I'll start with the positives. New York as a college football town is really fun if you want to find a group of like-minded individuals and go watch a game at a bar. There are... I think our sister site Eater made a map of them maybe a year or two ago, but there are a ton of bars around New York City that basically have an arrangement with the local alumni chapter or just some people who are like, hey, we're a bunch of LSU fans. We want to watch a game, whatever. And so it's very easy to say, okay, I know I can go here. I can, you know, sing the fight song. I can get a sticker. I can wear my gear and not have people wondering what the hell it even means. And I can watch the game and sort of uh, capture that communal experience again. As far as going to a game in person, your options are severely limited. You can go to a Rutgers game. I have been to two. I don't – I think – well, I think you have to adjust expectations. Um, my wife did get to go to the Rutgers game where they beat Brady Hoke's Michigan team. Okay, and she yeah. said that was – she said that was great. I didn't, I didn't sure. go to that game. Uh, other than that, you can go to the Pinstripe Bowl, or if Notre Dame's playing Yankee Stadium, like these are these are un- unless you want to be a Fordham fan, which Fordham's frequently good, so I'm not saying you shouldn't. Uh, yeah, your options are are pretty slim in terms of attendance. I guess you can trek out to Syracuse or or down to. You can. It's not. It's not short. It, yeah, it's not. If you want to go, if, if you want to go to a Buffalo game, you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to put some miles in. Yeah. No. For sure. Okay, and then um, looking ahead to to the rest of the year for Banner Society and also for for SEC football and and for college football as a whole, um, you've already got newsletters, you've got two podcasts. Uh, What else is in the works for the Banner Society, and how do people get involved with it? Um, We're going to keep – you you already mentioned the Slack. That's a thing we're going to be expanding upon and figuring out what to do with and hopefully making that a thing that – People can enjoy at various speeds and styles and whatever. Um, we're doing some live shows. We just announced our first one today. We're going to Houston very soon. But I know we're going to um, be bopping around some other places, mostly in the South this season. Um, we are going to start a third podcast at some point. I certainly don't know what it is, uh, even okay. in the slightest. And yeah, other than that, we're just going to kind of keep experimenting and trying things like the slack thing is a good idea a good example of there's it's not like that was on a calendar we made in july of week one we will do this thing we sort of just decided two or three days before like well let's just do this this is a thing we can do you know we can start a free slack channel we can just sort of tell people to sign up for it and let's just see what happens so i think that's very representative of the spirit in which we are trying to build this thing so that it is hopefully unexpected and delightful 
in ways that mostly work, and when they don't work, it's still funny. Yeah, for sure. I mean, everybody has you know their their, their group text, so this is like joining a a group text with. Uh, I mean, in some ways, that's what Twitter could be. Used, and, and yeah, it used be. to be in some ways. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, let's talk predictions for the season. Um, which team embarrasses itself the most, and uh, which team do you see? What you know? Which teams do you see making it to the college football playoff? You want? Do you want to stay SEC focused for the embarrassment question? Uh, well, give me, give me uh, both. Yeah. Well, I mean. Uh, I'm most interested in the SEC, but yeah, let, sure. if there's a, if there's another team outside of the SEC that's going to really embarrass itself, I want to know about that too. I mean, Tennessee is off to a great start. It's really they hard to it's really hard to like figure out who who could leapfrog them at this point. It's a long season, and week one doesn't necessarily make or break anything. But like doing something that your failed predecessors before you have never done in losing to a team outside of the Power Five. Especially as your home opener, especially when a boat burned, a boat in the Vol Navy <laughs> <laughs> caught on fire and sunk. Like, yeah, it's a if you, if, yeah. yeah, if you believe in omens, Tennessee, like, we'll go ahead and slot Tennessee right in there. Um, in terms of who's going to make the playoff, like, it feels foolish and silly to say, like, let's just put Bama and Clemson in there. The track record is what the track record is. I don't think there's a good reason to disagree with it at this point. I think that's probably still true of Oklahoma. Um, I don't know if Jalen Hurts is quite as multifaceted as Kyler Murray uh, Kyler Murray was last year, but he looked he looked pretty good against he Houston. Good, yeah, and they and they and, built an offense around him, which right? They never did so right. Um, and the Oklahoma defense was inconsistent when it played well it played very well i don't think we know how good houston is right now on offense so like i'm willing to go ahead and give them um a spot as well and then i the the fourth one is the hardest i i i would like to see michigan make it because i do like when narratives get turned upside down and i would actually like to see um Michigan sort of shed this, well, they they can never finish higher than blah, blah, blah in their division, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. That said, I think also narratives are a thing for a reason, so I'm not necessarily, and, and with a quarterback partially getting injured in week one, I'm not, uh, I'm not super on board with that. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's a decent chance that a Pac-12 team, at this point, Washington feels like the safest answer will run the table with a comparatively easy schedule, not like a straight up easy schedule, but Stanford didn't look great against Northwestern. Um, Oregon obviously looked great at points against Auburn, but Mm -hmm. not consistently. The Pac-12 South outside of Utah is kind of confusing. Colorado actually looked pretty good as well. Um, so, so yeah, I think, like, I'll, I'll hedge. I'll say Washington, Utah, I think one of them will put enough numbers on the board and see enough sort of uh, mutually assured destruction below them that they will, that you'll see the Pac-12 snag that fourth spot. Sounds good. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you for having me. And that's all the time we have on the clock, folks. 
Thank you to Ryan Lee for his time, and thank you all for listening. I wanted to take a moment to specifically thank one of you who left a five-star review on Apple, Professor Django. Professor Django said, I follow Reckon and AL.com regularly on all of their platforms for the coverage of Alabama news and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalism and editorials on the South and Southern culture. This new podcast is that distilled down to its most basic and interesting components. By interviewing celebrities and other influential people from the South, we not only get a glimpse into their lives as Southerners, but into the culture of the South and how we can celebrate our roots while moving ourselves forward. As a huge Star Trek fan, I particularly enjoyed the interview just posted with Sonequa Martin-Green, the lead of Star Trek Discovery, and hearing about the interplay of Southern upbringing, issues of race, and science fiction as a genre. I cannot recommend this highly enough. Thank you so much for the kind words, Professor Django. That Sonequa Martin-Green interview was one of my favorites, too, and if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and check it out. If you like our show as much as Professor Django, please subscribe and leave us a review. It helps us get the show in front of new folks so we can keep it going. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. The show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records. It was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. Follow Reckon on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. And go to al.com reckon to sign up for our newsletter and stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and around the South. And thanks again for reckoning with us. Thank you.